Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again thank You for Your Word and we thank You for the teaching of the Apostle Paul from Colossians. And we pray that You would direct us in the truth by Your Spirit, that He would strengthen us to understand, that You would give us hearts that perceive and understand, and, and eyes that see and ears that hear this day. We ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Within the pages of the Bible, we encounter a number of tensions as relates to the presentation of truth that God reveals to us and often our experience of that truth. One classic example of this is found in the tension that exists between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. We recognize that we as human beings are not robots and have a measure of freedom to make decisions while simultaneously acknowledging that there's nothing that happens in the universe that, that's outside of God's control. How these two realities pair together, together is often challenging, but we have to recognize that to diminish either of these poles of truth is to turn them into half-truths and something other than what they are. Well, we might sense a kind of tension in what Paul is teaching the Colossians here in chapter 3, particularly as he gives direct commands as to what these believers are not to be doing and what they are to be doing. Paul is quite direct, but we, are all, we also have to recognize that that context is key and make some clear distinctions between what Paul is saying and what he's not saying. And perhaps this is stating the obvious, but in verse 5 and following, Paul is in no way setting before the Colossians a way for them to make themselves right with God, to earn his favor, etc. 
No, when we stop and think about it, Paul is speaking to these Colossian believers in covenantal language and from a covenantal perspective. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's go back to Exodus uh, chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given to Israel on Mount Sinai. And while this may be review for many of you, before Yahweh, before the Lord gives Israel the commandments, what does he say? What all-important qualifying statement does he make? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What does that mean? That the people of Israel have been saved, they've been redeemed, they've been rescued. And it's precisely in that salvific context in which the Ten Commandments come. They were never given to the nation of Israel as the means by which the people earned their salvation, their right relationship with God. Rather, they were the rules that indicated that Israel was in relationship with Yahweh, functioning as her marriage vows, so to speak. Because of what Yahweh had done for Israel, his bride, and rescuing her from Egypt, then, then she promises to be faithful to this God who has redeemed her. They entered into covenant with one another. Now, what has Paul been doing for the better part of two chapters? Extolling the salvation, the deliverance, the reconciliation that Christ achieved on the cross. And again and again, Paul makes these connections between Christ and the church, between the head and the body, and what it means for believers to be with Christ, to be in Him and with Him, as he repeats again and again. And why this is so important is that it's from this indicative, from Paul's establishing what is true of these Christians, being clear about their identity, that he can then move into the imperative, into the ethical section, expressly stating the conduct, conduct of life that should characterize the Colossian church. This overlaps with the transitional exhortation that we find in the first four verses of chapter 3, which we considered last week, where Paul begins to direct him to the resurrection life, the life that is lived according to the kingdom of heaven, to the above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God until all his enemies become his footstool. And we can confidently say that's the period of history in which we presently live. Christ is subduing his enemies. It might not always look like it, but it's happening even as the Lord promises in Psalm 110. We're to direct our attention to the above things, but recall that Paul is not calling us to some type of ethereal spirituality. He's neither a Gnostic nor Buddhist, but is directing us to the kind of life that was demonstrated by Christ that comes from Christ who is in heaven. Furthermore, remember that earthly isn't in opposition to our physical lives, but is Paul's way of referring to what belongs to the old age, what belongs to our old life in Adam, our sinful fallen nature. Now, there are two covenant heads. There's Jesus who is from heaven, from above, or Adam who is from the earth, from below. And as believers, as those who have been raised with Christ, who are in him, he is our covenant head, and we, so we pursue the new life in him. This identity is the starting point. This is who you are, so be who you are. And this foundational understanding is crucially important for our faith to grasp as we then pursue, pursue the heavenly life, the new life, which calls upon us to put off the old and put on the new and even more forcibly to put to death the earthly as Paul commands in verse 5. And here we encounter Paul's first list of five vices. And these sins can be generally characterized as personal as well as relating a great deal to the seventh commandment. 
Put to death, therefore, the parts which are upon the earth, sexual immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and the greed which is idolatry. Paul doesn't mince words. Notice the strong language that he uses. Put to death. It's a command. State the obvious. Part of the new life in Christ is putting to death aspects of the old one in Adam. Of course, this doesn't diminish the complete and decisive work that Christ accomplished upon the cross and presents us with another tension, a form of Paul's already and not yet theology, where we recognize who we are fully in Christ and also the vestiges of sin that we still combat in our daily lives. And all of you know this reality from your own Christian experience, whether that consists of a relatively short period of time or decades. Uh, The traditional term for what Paul is advocating is mortification. But we have to realize that mortification of our sin is not a call to some form of asceticism. Nor should it cause us to come up with 100 commandments that become a new definition of righteousness. You know, Paul just got through refuting that kind of thinking at the end of chapter 2 with his teaching about the regulations of the old order. As one scholar puts it, Paul's recommended treatment is simpler and more drastic. To put something to death, you must cut off its lines of supply. It is futile and self-deceiving to bemoan one's inability to resist the last stage of a temptation when earlier stages have gone by unnoticed or even eagerly welcomed. This does not mean setting up a new hedge around the law, such as branding all theatrical performances, or whatever, as inherently sinful. Rather, every Christian has the responsibility before God to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. Better that than have them eventually destroy him. Now, what is Paul basically doing? Whose teaching is he imitating? Well, the teaching of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount when he addresses the issue of adultery at the heart level. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Of course, Jesus isn't advocating self-mutilation, nor is he telling the disciples to simply think differently, but to take action, to do what is necessary to destroy what causes you to stumble. See, there's a certain violence that it's inherent, that's inherent to the Christian life when it comes to combating sin. Paul is basically saying the same thing. So he addresses these first five vices, these various forms of sexual sins. And notice the progression, or maybe we could even call it reverse progression, that we find here. The word for sexual immorality is a term that can encompass quite a number of sins, such as adultery and fornication, but basically refers to open sexual actions that break the commands. Vice number two, uncleanness can be understood as degenerate behavior in life, in conversation, or improper behavior. Number three, passion, indicates lack of emotional self-control. It can also mean inordinate affection or lust. Number four, evil desire, uh, hidden desires that are impure, longing for what is forbidden. And then number five, the greed or the covetousness, uh, our greedy desires, or even we could use the, the term avarice. And possibly now we find ourselves at the Tenth Commandment. But notice how Paul's list goes from outward actions and then makes its way to the unseen level of the heart and thought. The greed or covetousness that Paul expresses here reveals 
a basic orientation toward earthly things. There's a captivation with them. And Paul goes on to say that this is a form of idolatry. It's going after a false god. Greed fixates on this world, which inevitably leads to idolatry. Or to come at it from a different angle, covetousness basically believes that God got something wrong. And when we covet after something that we don't have, a neighbor's spouse, house, car, life, etc., then we're basically discontent with what God has given us. We're acting like He's made some kind of mistake. And it's interesting that here in Colossians, Paul goes in reverse order in comparison to Romans chapter 1, 18 and following, where he begins with the idolatry and then goes to show the levels of corruption to which idolatry is, idolatry is visibly manifest. And how does Paul chiefly represent the corruption in Romans 1? Through various sexual sins. As one theologian observes, sexual sin arises from an idolatrous attachment to the world. And with all of the sexual deviation, temptation, and chaos in our present society, that's an obvious indicator that we're given over to our idols, which we most certainly are. Idolatrous fixations on things increases the degrees of the sins. Another way to consider this is that if we make primary what God has made secondary, then our basic orientation will corrupt us. And as, as those who have a robust view of the goodness of creation and the enjoyment of it, as those who have a dominion mindset, as we rightly should, then we also need to be that much more aware of not misplacing our priorities. We must seek first the kingdom of God. And when dealing with idolatry, well, what's the only way out? Well, by getting rid of the idols, pursuing right worship, Bible study and prayer, all of which help to keep us focused on that which is to be primary. And then notice what Paul says in verse 6. On account of these comes the wrath of God. Some of your English translations may also add the qualifying phrase, upon the sons of disobedience, which is an alternate reading preferred by some and matches similar phrasing that we find in Ephesians 5, 6. And there are decent arguments from scholars on both sides of the debate and we'll leave such discussions for another day. What is clear is that the wrath of God comes upon these habituated sins. But how does God's wrath come? One argument is in the sense of a final judgment, which is certainly true enough, even as we confess weekly in the Nicene Creed. Another argument is that the giving of the people over to these sins is the manifestation of God's wrath, and that's true as well. Where you see these sexual sins in full bloom, there is God's wrath displayed upon the individual, upon the society. But then we come to a word of encouragement in verse 7, don't we? Notice what Paul says, "...in which also you walked in times past when you lived in these." Back in chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul has already mentioned their call to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Here Paul is clear to say that this is in their past, indicated by his use of the past tense. That this is how they were formerly characterized. This was their pattern for life. But that's no longer the case anymore. And and notice the beautiful and and subtle way that Paul is saying this is no longer their identity. This is no longer how they're to define themselves. 
which is a powerful thing to consider. Yes, this was formerly true of some of these Colossians, but it's not true of them now on account of their being in Christ and what His redeeming work has achieved. Paul then goes on in verse 8 and gives another command. But now put off even you all these. Wrath, outbursts of anger, maliciousness, slander, foul words out of your mouth. So here's another list of five vices, all of which relate to anger, which arguably connects to the sixth commandment. Again, go back to the Sermon on the Mount. We also run into the ninth commandment, perhaps, but also see how Paul goes from the inward life to outward expressions, you know, the opposite order of the previous list. And furthermore, also notice that these are what can be chiefly characterized as social sins, and particularly sins that readily disrupt community. Sins of the tongue are arguably the greatest enemy to fellowship and unity. Paul mentions wrath or anger, referring to a settled wrath and bitterness, a continuous state of smoldering or seething hatred. Then he mentions outbursts of anger. The wrath expresses itself in words or deeds. Malice or maliciousness is a word that can simply mean evil, but probably has the idea of evil intended to cause hurt. Slander, the word is even more literally blasphemy, but in this context it means slander, speech which puts malice into practical effect, no matter how subtle. It lets out information that tears someone else down, that damages their reputation. Obscene talk, filthy language, words which by their foul association or their abusive intent contaminate both speaker and hearers. Sarcastic speech can also be included in this last category, the kind of sarcasm that is constant and reveals bitterness. You know, someone who is sarcastic all of the time is laying waste to any and all around them with their speech. Paul commands, all these things are to be put away from your mouth, put away from your lips. You might become angry in your thoughts, but don't let that anger then spill out of your mouth. Deal with your anger before it turns into words. And by exposing anger in this way, by clearly naming these various sins and manifestations of anger, it makes us more accountable and responsible and conscious of what is involved with the sin of anger. But there's also help here because naming helps us to seize the sin, to know clearly what we're dealing with, and then to summarily put it away. So consider Paul's list of anger and its various forms of expression and let us examine our own hearts and lives, setting the mirror of God's Word before us. We need to call our sins of anger what they are, name them by name, and then put them to death. Set them aside. Do violence to them. The the new humanity in Christ doesn't act this way. Such behavior is inexcusable. The standard is Jesus in heaven, and this is not how he behaves. Well, maybe you think this call to put off sounds good and you might be a little bit optimistic, but then you wonder how realistic is it? Can this really be true of God's people? Some of you may know of or recall, but the Welsh revival of 1902 to 1904 so radically altered the entire Rhonda Valley of Wales that the animals employed to bring up the coal from the mines had to be taken out of the coal mines and retrained. Before the awakening, they responded only to the commands of their drivers punctuated with cursing. However, so many miners were converted, and with their language cleaned up, 
the colliery animals did not know how to work. Hence the necessity of retraining. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastor at Sandfields in England from 1927 to 1938. As recounted in his biography, some of the most unlikely characters were brought to Sandfields by friends. One such was Mark McCann, whom Mrs. Lloyd-Jones still remembers from the night when he entered the chapel for the first time. A thin, tallish, raw-boned man, his gray hair well plastered down, a slightly embarrassed expression on his face, and an incredible mustache. As his Christian companion passed her pew, he whispered, I've got one of the devil's generals here tonight, Mrs. Jones. Pray for him to be converted. McCann, of Scots and Irish parentage, was then probably in his early 60s. Once a minor, his living and his enjoyment had centered largely upon the fights in which he engaged at fairs. With his vicious temper and considerable strength, it was only the providence of God which had restrained him from actually killing anyone. Once, when his dog had eaten the dinner intended for him to consume, he had cut off its head with a bread knife. McCann was one of those whose conversion was was swift. On his first visit to the chapel, he was arrested by the Spirit of God. The next Sunday evening, he was there again, and to the surprise of his companion, when the service ended, he indicated his intention to stay for the after meeting. When the usual question was put at that meeting amidst the solemn joy of many witnesses, Mark McCann stood to profess the name of Christ. And from that moment, writes Mrs. Lloyd-Jones, he showed himself to be a changed man, unfailingly faithful, truly born again, another somewhat elderly babe for the church to love and nurture. So can this be true of God's people? Yes, for as it was true in the case of Mark McCann, so it's true for you and for me. Maybe these examples seem extreme, but isn't it the same Holy Spirit at work? Isn't Jesus the same Savior for you? Isn't His gospel, His word the same for you? And Paul would emphatically answer yes. Despite how you may feel sometimes, if you're joined to Christ's family, then you're a different person. Well, notice what else Paul goes on to say in verses 9 and 10 and gives another command. Stop lying to one another. It's in the present tense, which may imply that they're not as accustomed to telling the truth as they ought to be. Of course, lying destroys trust, which destroys relationships and community. It's hard to have real, genuine fellowship with someone You don't trust when you don't trust what he or she says. So no lying. Having disarmed the old man with his deeds. And the word Paul uses disarmed or discarded, um, rendered put off in our English translations typically, is the same word he used back in chapter 2 and verse 15 when he talks about Christ's work on the cross where he disarmed the rulers and the authorities. That theology carries forward into the Christian's practical experience. And so the old man, Adam, has been discarded, rendered impotent, along with his way of life. It's seen, it's been set aside, even arguably, at baptism. Verse 10, And having been clothed in the new, the one making new in knowledge according to the image of his Creator. So having put off, then there's also a putting on that has taken place, the believer has received new robes. And while there's, there's certainly clothing imagery here of putting off and putting on, as though you take off old clothes and put on new ones, which is fine, let's be sure to recognize the underlying biblical imagery of clothing as it relates to office and status. 
You know, don't think of clothing just as accessories, but that you've received new clothing, that you've been given royal robes that mark out your place in the kingdom. The new garments reflect your true identity, to whose family you belong, and the rules of life that govern that family. Your garments are now those of a prince or princess. You belong to the royal family of the one true king. And you're called to this new life of putting off the old and putting on the new. And it's a call to action for sure. But also your knowledge is being made new. It's being renewed. You, you come to truly know what is good and what is evil. The outworking of your faith, the practical application of your Christianity is found on the full recognition of truth about God and about oneself. Your ethics flow out of what God has done and what He has declared and who He has told you that you are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. But what do you put on instead? What are the garments of those who serve the King? What does your raiment consist of? What do you look like? Well, Paul goes on to further detail that in verses 12 to 17, which hopefully we'll consider next week. But anytime there's a particular sin that you're dealing with, not only should you repent of it and put it away, but also cultivate its virtuous counterpart, the opposite of the sin. And Paul has more to say about that. Notice the renewal that Paul describes. It's it's an ongoing, continuous process. And the renewal particularly relates to knowledge, to the image of the Creator of the new man. Now certainly there are overtones to Genesis, the creation account the language of image and creator. But this same word for image, Paul used in 115 in relation to Christ as the image of the unseen God. And what's more, a case can be made that verses 9 and 10 of our text are an outworking of the theology of his hymn, his poem, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Here's what the new humanity that Christ has created, that he's made, looks like. And so much so that Christ has overcome all the social barriers of the ancient world as well as the modern when Paul writes in verse 11, where there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but the all and in all Christ. Paul portrays four sets of pairs and the fact that his main concern for the Colossian church is the Judaizing contingent is evidenced with the first two pairs of Greek and Jew circumcised and uncircumcised. Those are categories that Jews would have cared about and no one else. Barbarians was a general classification for those whose speech was considered to be rude, rough, or harsh. It sounded like bar, 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 bar. Um, Hence the repetition of barbarian, bar, bar in the name barbarian. And I'm sure there's a joke about the Beach Boys hit Barbaran somewhere in there as well. But Scythians were possibly the most barbaric of the barbarian believed to be from modern-day Russia, um, western Siberia, around the Black Sea, or also could be a reference to slaves that came from these people, but hard to know for sure. Paul then also mentioned slave and free, two other categories that would have characterized one standing in the ancient world. But again, Paul's point is that this kind of thinking, holding people to categories in this fashion, is a mark of the old world, the old order, in sin, in Adam, before Christ. But now that Christ has come, he is the all and in all. And yet again, we're back to Paul's hymn in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You know, what is the solution for the deep social and cultural barriers that exist in society? And if we think they're bad now, they probably don't hold a candle to the ancient world. Paul's point is the gospel. Christ as the antidote to those who would treat anyone else as subhuman, which was the thinking in the ancient world. And of course, just as the sins of the tongue can destroy community, so can holding to viewing others through these cultural prejudices. But the gospel proclaims a new humanity in Christ, and the church evidences this reality as she lives out the pattern that Christ himself has set in not making culture distinctions for the lavishing of his saving grace. Christ has torn down the various means of separation in the old world, and it's for the church to continue in that vein, not creating new means of separation, but also actively tearing down those that oppose the gospel. Yet again, we see that in the new life to which we're called, there's a call to violence, a righteous and holy violence against sin. We're called to put to death the old, to thoroughly discard it and cut away all of its supply lines. And this is part of the life of dominion to which we've been directed. You know, I I suppose we often think about taking dominion as exploring the world or cultivating it or pursuing a calling in some form or fashion, and and that's fine and that's true. But we also have to recognize that dominion begins with having dominion over ourselves. Or to put it, perhaps in less glamorous terms, having self-control. Paul is teaching that we don't have to live in bondage to sinful tendencies. That we can take dominion. That we must take dominion over these areas of our lives. Because that's who we already are in Christ and who we're called to be. And as the renewing process continues in your life, as your knowledge of the Savior deepens and grows, as your affections are all the more captivated by the life of heaven and the things above which you are to pursue, when your primary focus is seeking first His kingdom and its righteousness, when these affections dominate, then sin will necessarily become less dominating as you grow and mature. Of course, this doesn't mean we become slack less vigilant in our violence against sin, as any grizzled veteran of the faith will tell you. But faith also has the expectation of progress, of maturity, that what Paul tells the Colossians to do can actually be done because of who we are in Christ and the power and working of the Holy Spirit, which will bear such fruit and maturity in our lives. Remember, you get to Colossians 3, by way of chapters 1 and 2. And you are part of Christ's renewal project for the world, even as you are being renewed in knowledge after His image, that you're being made more like Him through the means that He's given. So heed His word this day from the Apostle Paul. Take it in and be further invigorated in the life of righteous violence against sin. Live in the tension of who you are in Christ and who you've been redeemed to be. And come to the Lord's table with the expectation that in the elements of the bread and wine, He not only strengthens you for the new life, but is also renewing you after His image, making you more like Him as you eat His body and drink His blood. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the commands that have come to us from Your Word this day by the Apostle Paul. May we take them to heart and may we be all the more vigorous 
in our violence against sin and our lives, pursuing your kingdom that is from above and pursuing the righteous life that we are to live here in glory and honor to you. Help us and strengthen us by your means of grace for these ends. We humbly ask in Jesus' name. Amen.